Hey, what's up? You're listening to the Give Me Understanding podcast, and I'm the host, Aaron Dodson. And today I have a special guest that I'll introduce in just a moment. Psalm 119, verse 34, is the passage that best describes this podcast. The psalmist wrote in the long ago, Give me understanding, and I shall keep your law. Indeed, I shall observe it with my whole heart. This is the podcast where I discuss the sacred text, and I do my best to help myself and others understand it so that we can keep God's law and that we can observe it with our whole hearts. And today I have a special guest, uh, brother in Christ and friend, Drew Leonard. Drew, how are you doing? And tell us a little bit about yourself, because I'm sure some of my listeners may not know who you are. Uh, I'm doing very well. Thanks for asking. And it's a pleasure to be on the podcast today. Uh, I'll tell just a quick little snippet about how you and I met. I think you were a second year student at Memphis when I first came to school as a first year. And uh, we got to know each other a little bit then, would pass in the halls and talk outside of classes a little bit. Um, and then later, after I got married and um, we hadn't had our child yet, but uh, we met at Bay, Arkansas, where we were invited by Tony Brewer to come and uh, do a little seminar on Revelation. And we kind of spent the weekend together then. And uh, since then, we've had our child. My wife's name is Hannah, and we've got a two-year-old boy now named Spencer. And uh, right now we're preaching for the Cherokee Church of Christ in Johnson City, Tennessee. And uh, I don't know if that suits exactly what you're looking for, yeah. but that's about what we're that's what we do. So Awesome. Yes. And I remember clearly, you know, school, but I don't remember fine details. We were busy, you know, yes. but I do remember more clearly uh, you coming to Bay, Arkansas. And I really enjoyed the seminar that you did there on Revelation. And I would assume you do similar things now or would do, I guess. Um, but, uh, I enjoyed that. Maybe we could consider that subject another time as well, uh, <laughs> Certainly. A, a very, very needed study from the book of revelation. But, uh, in this episode, I'm excited to discuss the subject of the old Testament. And, and one of the reasons that I'm doing this episode with you is because, uh, I feel like the old Testament is, is, is overlooked. And, and oftentimes, brethren, we feel disengaged from it. Um, maybe at best we know that it helps us understand the character of God, or we hear sermons teaching that we can learn from it, which is true, Romans 15, 4. Uh, what are some of your you know, beginning thoughts as far as the Old Testament? And do you feel that it is neglected? Maybe why it's neglected? Um, and its importance to the Christian today. I know that's loaded, but you know, why do you think that it is neglected uh, today and why do people d feel disconnected from it? Yeah. Um, good question. And, uh, and, 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 and what does it mean to us today? Yeah. Excellent question. Um, I'm going to go at it this way by saying first and foremost, uh, we've got a real struggle right now with our youth just because they even feel disconnected from the cross of Christ. Uh, that was 2000 years ago. And a number of our youth in the Western civilization are asking, so what bearing does this cross of this man, Jesus, who was one crucified man out of thousands, what bearing or what significance does he have on my life? And I think that these questions really need to be given a serious look. Um, the cross of Christ, of course, becomes important because he's the only human being to ever do it right. His death is not just a death on the cross. It was a death on the cross, but it was more than that. It was a selfless, sacrificial emptying of his status of everything that he could have exploited. And he told the devil, like in Matthew chapter four, no, it's because I'm divine that I can't do the things you're saying. 
it would actually betray my divine power. And so he actually shows us in a human body what it looks like to do it right. Now to move back even further then to the Old Testament and say, well, then what about these events of like 6,000 or 5,000 or 4,000 years ago? What bearing did they have on us? Well, they were always working forward to Jesus Christ. And so I'm thinking of Galatians 3, 24 and 25, where it says the whole Old Testament was supposed to move us forward to Christ. They were a schoolmaster so that we might be delivered from under a law system. And he says in Galatians 3, 24 and 25, the goal, the fulfillment is Jesus Christ. Uh, there's an interesting bit in Matthew chapter 5, 17 and 18, where he tells the fellows that are really critical of him. He says, um, you know, don't think that I came to destroy the law. And he says, I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. And so a passage, I think that quite, quite often put with Romans 15, 4, which is that the Old Testament was written for our learning is 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, where Paul is reflecting on the Exodus generation who had been rebellious and they had committed adultery and they were committing idolatry. And he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happened to them and as, as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. There was an Old Testament people of faith, but they were constantly working forward to this final climactic moment. And Paul sees the cross of Jesus Christ as being the climax of the Old Testament remnant of faith. And we now stand in continuity with those Old Testament people. There were faithful people back there as well, Abraham and Moses and Noah. And Paul reads it at least to say, we stand in the same rich heritage or tradition that they did. And I think that's a wonderful thought is just to look at the Old Testament heroes of faith who looked forward to the coming of Christ. And then this moment in history, the cross of Jesus makes the two now our side on the other end of the cross converge with the pre-cross era. And we're all people that are living by grace through faith. And I think that's just a wonderful thing. Why is the Old Testament significant? Well, it's because it's our heritage. Absolutely. And the New Testament is the fulfillment of those promises that God made to Abraham and to Israel, right? That's right. That is right. Yes. So without having that foundation, we can't appreciate, as God would have us to appreciate, the the things that he promised, the things that he brought to fruition, right? Certainly. And, certainly. Yeah. We're, we would be, you know, underestimating maybe God's power and ability and his, just so many things that go with that. How... A passage that comes to mind is Luke 24, uh, 44. Jesus said, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. How does that and Jesus saying that play into the significance of the Old Testament for us today? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, there's this view right now that's called a Christological, and of course uh, the word Christos in the Greek is a translation, transliteration of the Hebrew, it's a translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So whenever you're reading across the word in your New Testament, Christ, Jesus Christ, the Jew is reading that from a Hebrew background as Jesus Messiah. The Messiah figure of the Old Testament becomes identified as Jesus of Nazareth. So like I'm thinking of football right now, I'm just going to pick probably the most popular quarterback, at least of the last recent years uh, in the NFL. And that's probably Tom Brady. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you say something like quarterback, 
that's an office and that's very generic. It could be filled by any people, uh, a number of people. It could be filled by Eli Manning, Peyton Manning, Patrick Mahomes, uh, Joe Namath, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those, though, become specific. So the generic idea is quarterback, but it becomes narrowed down when we start to fill the office or the role. And that's what Jesus is saying he does for the role of the Messiah. The Old Testament looked forward to this idea of a Messiah figure that was coming. And they didn't know who it was. If it if they did know who it was, there would have been names and dates all over the Old Testament. And it looks like by my reading of the Old Testament, there was a time where they thought at first, maybe the Messiah is supposed to be Josiah, king of Judea. And uh, then they started to realize, no, Josiah is not the guy. Then it looks like they really thought in an earlier year, even Hezekiah was going to be the guy. And then later on in the book of Zechariah, it looks like to me that they thought maybe Zerubbabel was supposed to be the Messiah. And God is consistently saying in the Old Testament prophets, the Messiah is coming. But Daniel is written especially to show us that there had to be four world empires that had to pass before the Messianic kingdom would come. And so Hezekiah wasn't fitting. Josiah wasn't fitting. Zerubbabel wasn't fitting. And God's telling them the whole time, you're not there yet. The time hasn't come. We open up Mark chapter one and what said, oh, the time, an echo back to the set, uh, the text of Daniel 7, 22. He says the time is fulfilled. And you've got the same Greek word there in Mark 1, 15, as in the LXX, the Septuagint of Daniel 7, 22. He says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. What kingdom is that? It's the Messianic kingdom. The Old Testament is absolutely littered. You're exactly right with Luke 24, 24 uh, 44 and 45 with this idea that the Messiah was coming. So when we come back to this question about something like a Christological hermeneutic, I think we're perfectly right to go back to the Old Testament and try to see if we can find Christ there because the New Testament itself, Jesus Christ himself, says that we ought to do such a thing. Now, we need to hear the Old Testament on its own merit first. We need to go ahead and read it as if we were oh, let's say third century BC Jews, before Christ ever came into the world, let's try to read the Old Testament with that background first. But there's something that happens then once we read it that way, if we go to the New Testament secondarily and we hear and we see how Christ and the New Testament draws our attention back to the Old Testament, it's much more enriching, I think. And Jesus himself is telling us to do that. Uh, in Luke 24, I always got this idea, you know, that Jesus was a little bit, edgy uh, when it came to who he was and his office. And he actually says in Luke 24, 25 through 27, that these individuals were slow of heart, fools. He says, oh, fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was not the Messiah to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then it says in 27, and beginning from all the scriptures, he began to expound unto them the things concerning himself. That is striking because Jesus is telling us then if we read if we read and if we continue to read the Old Testament without seeing the Messiah there somehow, we are fools and slow of heart. All of a sudden, I'm forced to realize Jesus Christ is no edgy character. The Old Testament truly was anticipating the Messiah. So if we want to get a fuller portrait of who the Messiah, our Savior is, we've got to do something with the Old Testament. He himself is telling us to do that. I'll make one more point, and then I've got to be quiet on this point or I'll go too long. Um, <laughs> and that is that Jesus Christ said in John chapter 5, 39 through 46, he said, 
you act like you're believing Moses. He said, that's a load of junk. And he said, if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. He spake of me. Now, how that happens needs deciphering. It needs interpretation. But Jesus' words himself were that Moses, the prophet Moses, spake about Jesus. And I'm convinced that we ought to commit to that kind of idea as well. Well, I like all these comments and these thoughts uh, from Scripture because what it does is it helps us today who Christians that we love Jesus Christ and He's our Lord and Savior. Uh, it helps us to understand then, at least give us some footing and background and a basis to help yeah. us want to get into that Old Testament, you know. Right. And, right. And, 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 and we can find Him there without misusing God's Word, you know. I'm minded in that passage, even I don't want to go long. I just wanted to mention John 5, 39, how they thought by, you know, pouring over these scriptures, they had eternal life. And Jesus says, pay attention to them. They <laughs> speak right. of me. And I like the next verse, but you are not willing and and to come to me. Yeah. So we have to be willing to do that. You know, some would say, well, you, you can't will and you can't desire. And these are individuals that, and unfortunately we're rejecting Jesus yeah. But but yet Jesus said that the bottom line issue is you're not willing to come. You know, yeah, you right. are not willing. But it, but be that as it may. So the Old Testament, just some of the things we've already said so far, we can we can we can see clearly just from a few passages, even things that our Lord said, the great significance and the background of things that our brother Paul wrote, you know, in the long ago in the first century. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the details of the Old Testament. Um, okay. It, particularly like the 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 different genres of the Old Testament. If we're to go back and try to make sense of it, um, not only the genres, but maybe also the different literature that's found there and how that will help us, knowing that will help us in interpreting it properly, uh, but also maybe some suggestions too, if you have, of helping to bridge that time gap. There's a time gap there's a cultural gap between not only Jesus's day in the Old Testament, but speak about us, frankly, you know, us many years removed, thousands, more than 2,000 years removed from the events of the Old Testament books. Uh, so some suggestions maybe that you might have with that. Yeah, excellent question. So first on the genres deal with the Old Testament, um, you've got a couple of different genres of literature there. You've, of course, got... Um, like, well, you read Luke 24, 44, and 45, where it breaks it down into three major sections that the Jews had. There was the law, the prophets, and the writings. Our English Bible, I think, does a little bit better with that and further breaks it down even into you've got some sections of history that in the Old Testament, they, the Jews, had just lumped in with uh, the prophets. Uh, we also have a genre. We've neatly termed this apocalyptic literature. Uh, and there are shades of that in the prophets, and then it really comes out in the New Testament, I'm thinking particularly in Revelation. Uh, there's an eschatological framework which kind of goes hand in hand with apocalyptic, and that largely deals with quote-unquote end times. But the prophets speak of end times of nations in a lot of ways, and we need to be very careful to pay attention to context, and that's an Old Testament principle as much as it's a New Testament principle. Five really good questions we need to think about asking whenever we read any literature is the who, what, when, where, and why. And just on asking those questions and trying to find answers to those, we'll have already done 
a good deal of our homework before we read the text. So in the Old Testament, you've got poetry, you've got the wisdom literature, which has poetry and it's loaded with metaphor. Uh, I would just be very careful to pay attention to those kinds of things and just at least be aware that they're there. Now on the question about our removal from such literature, um, I think one of the things that we would do, a lot of people have this idea that we're good, good New Testament readers. And I don't mean to be rude, but I would challenge if we are really good New Testament readers. Um, it's been my experience that at one time, I, I'm speaking now of my personal experience. I used to think that I knew the New Testament real well, and I didn't know the Old Testament. And then it was upon finding out when I started reading the Old Testament, I started finding out I don't know my New Testament either. And I think that we would do really well, even if you are a good New Testament reader, I would just ask if we really have looked at some of those echoes or some of those quotations um, with, with a, a fine-toothed comb. Because I remember for the first time, this was something I can't believe I didn't know before, but I remember this was after preaching school even, that I started to figure out the significance that the New Testament was constantly quoting the Old Testament. And what I had been doing was I would read the New Testament and never go back and recover the Old Testament reading. So Paul quotes Isaiah or Paul quotes Hosea or uh, Jesus Christ himself quotes Isaiah or they quote Genesis. And it never even occurred to me to actually go back to the Old Testament and try to pick up out of the Old Testament what Paul or Jesus or some of the others were doing with those texts. And now I start to look at that and I'm thinking, oh, that is really naive. Like they're obviously using the Old Testament readings in the same way that we now use the New Testament readings. And so I think if like a common thing would be, I mean, I'm just speaking again of my own experience. Nearly every Sunday I use Acts 2.38 as I extend the gospel plan of salvation. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think it's my favorite passage on baptism, but I think it's a really good one. And so, I mean, you've got Romans 6, you've got Acts 2, all of these passages, you know, and you could quote a number of passages on baptism. But if I'm going to draw out of Acts chapter 2 the idea of baptism, there's obviously a whole context that I'm assuming that is there. And what I'm doing as a preacher is I'm actually expecting my audience to have some kind of knowledge with what's going on there rather than just an isolated snippet that's ripped out of some kind of context without any care for Acts uh, 2, 1 through 37 or Acts chapter 2, 39 through 47. I'm actually expecting that we know Acts chapter 2, and, and even in a wider sense, even the book of Acts, and even in a wider sense, the New Testament, and even in, in a broader sense, the entire Bible. I'm expecting that there's a background and a context there. And I'm, I'm starting to realize that Jesus and Paul are doing the exact same thing with the Old Testament. When they quote Genesis, like I'm thinking of Matthew 19, where Jesus says, haven't you read that he that made them at the beginning made them male and female, Matthew 19, 4. Now I get it. He's not just quoting Genesis chapter 2. He's quoting and grabbing hold of Genesis 1 through 11, the whole creation narrative. And that whole thing means something to Christ. He's endorsing the whole Genesis structure. And that has implications that even Jesus doesn't pair up for us. He's implying a good number of things. You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about transgenderism explicitly. But the fact that Jesus endorses Genesis says an awful lot about transgenderism. Yes. The fact that Jesus in Matthew 19 doesn't say anything explicitly about homosexuality doesn't bother me a bit. He endorses Genesis and implies an awful lot about homosexuality. 
He implies an awful lot about polygamy. He implies an awful lot about a number of things just because he endorses Genesis. And as good Bible readers, we'll pay attention to the context and how just one little line, if he endorses that text, he's bringing with it an entire structure that has really formative um, threads deeply within. And it forces us even in the modern era to reshape our lives. I have found it very stimulating here in the recent years to see how these ancient texts that are explicitly silent on modern issues are quite loud by implication. And I think that that's yes. something that we would be very, very keen to consider. And that will help us like taking that whole narrative from the old Testament, keeping that in mind when we read to connect with it, even though there is a time gap, is that what you're suggesting that that will help us? And that do, do you have any, maybe one or two go-to sources that you would be comfortable recommending as pertains to like culture or background, not necessarily commentary, but culture or background or, um, you know, societal things like, because the old Testament, their culture and then their, you know, you, you got different contexts in the old Testament. I know that the old Testament yeah. covers a, a huge period of time, you know, from the early, very beginning with the garden, then out of the garden, uh, Mesopotamia, uh, you know, or the Chaldeans, yeah. uh, Heron, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, you know, all these different, there's different places, but, I don't know. Do you have anything that comes to mind that might help someone in addition to combing over the text carefully? That's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, I'm sitting here looking at my library right now, and I've got a number of commentaries. I have always, for whatever reason, found the commentaries to be most helpful on background questions. Um, mainly that's because I work specifically with the text mostly. Like, I'm teaching maybe uh, like last night. Let me just say I was teaching second Corinthians chapter five last night. Well, if I'm going to develop the Greco Roman world, I'm looking for something specifically on second Corinthians five for my purposes. So I don't do a whole lot of reading to be honest. That's just like outside and just reading about the historical setting. Uh, most of what I've learned about the historical setting has come from commentaries. There are some books though that, or in and around this area that I found helpful. Um, but most of those, again, like relate to specific texts. Uh, so whether it be like an outside source on the book of Genesis, something like that, I don't know. I really don't have a good answer to that question. Okay. I, I didn't know if maybe, you know, like if you had a particular manners and custom, you know, Bibles, manners and custom type book that you might suggest that would be helpful to the average Bible student, you know, but, uh, I don't know. That's a that's a good question. I've got some books that I've thumbed through, but I've not spent enough time to give a hard recommendation. Sure, I understand. Um, Edersheim, I'm told, is really good on the Jewish culture. Uh, I've got his book, The Temple, and then also The Life and Times of the Messiah. Yes, uh, or something like that by Alfred Edersheim. Um, I've always thought that Abraham Malherbe. Uh, he was a professor at Yale, and then he was also a graduate of Abilene Christian. I don't like his theology in a lot of places, but he's got a little book in the Living Word series, which is called The World of the New Testament. Yeah. It might be helpful. I've looked at it in a couple of places. And then there's also an Old Testament companion like that. It's the Living Word commentary series as well, um, which was the editor was John Willis. And it's called The World and Literature of the Old Testament, I believe it is. Yeah, um, I think I've heard of that. Yes. 
Yeah, I'm looking at it now, the world and literature of the Old Testament. So uh, that one I've used a little bit more than the New Testament one. Both of those books are not bad. It wouldn't have everything that you're wanting, but it would give you a good head start, I think, in some ways. Yeah, just, you know, it's nice sometimes having a brief, especially for someone just starting out or a new Christian or just somebody that maybe has been a Christian a long time, but the only history they know about the Bible is just what the text says. So they're like wanting to appreciate better, you know, why this, why that in that culture, maybe, you know. Now, that's a good question. On that kind of question, I would probably also throw in Neil Lightfoot had a little book called How We Got the Bible. Uh, one of There are two different versions. One is like a 100-page a version, and then he's got one that's like maybe three or 400 pages. Get the 100-page version, How We Got the Bible by not Neil Lightfoot, and you'll get an appreciation just for like how we even got the Bible. It's yes. a good little read, and it's nothing like, too lofty in its vocabulary. It's a it's a pretty easy and satisfying read. Yes, I, and 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 I can personally recommend that one as well. I've read both okay, of those, neat. and I like I like those. Yeah, neat. I think that's helpful. I just I'm trying to make some suggestions to our readers that will help them just connect. I mean, you can't connect better with God and God's Word in <laughs> any right. way better than reading God's Word and yeah. studying it. I'm not suggesting that, but I just I thought you know maybe there's some things that might help us appreciate some of the idioms or some of the, uh, you know, cultural standards and, you know, mandrakes in the book of Genesis. And just, but <laughs> yeah. again, sometimes a technical commentary can be helpful in that too, you know, and then there's tons out there and you just always have to, you know, line it up with God's word and common sense. And you have to be careful, you know, with some of those things, but some of them are pretty good. And so, some of our Maybe listeners might find this helpful. Um, you've probably got a copy of this as well, I'm thinking. Um, Wayne Jackson's got a little book. I say it's a little book. It's actually a big book, a New Testament commentary. And um, it's published by Christian Courier Publications. And they used to be out of Stockton, California. I think they're now in Tennessee somewhere. Um, Wayne Jackson has now passed away, of course. But he's got a book. I don't agree. I mean, here I am recommending his book. There's a lot of academic material that I really disagree with Wayne Jackson on. But uh, as far as a commentary, a single volume commentary that you can buy and have commentary on the whole New Testament, I think it's probably the best one we've got out there. Um, he'll give you a good good something to chew on, if nothing, nothing else. And I think that it'd be good for somebody who doesn't have a lot of money, but they might have a $50 bill that they can spare. If you yeah. can't build an entire library with critical commentaries or whatever, that might be a really good book to have as your only book. If you only could buy one book, uh, Wayne Jackson's commentary on the New Testament might be really helpful in some yeah, ways. I have that, and I'm inclined to agree too. And like the way you mentioned it and what you said, even things that you might not agree with, most of those things probably fall into the realm of academic things. And I don't think uh, our brother Wayne, our dearly departed, you know, we're <laughs> yeah. speaking of the dead here, but our, our brother Wayne spoke on anything or wrote anything that would damn a person's soul. You right. know, he, yeah, I think he, I think he got those things right. And yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, and that's, he would help you on like, if you had an idiom or something, he would really yes. be helpful there. I yeah. Think. Things like that. Yeah, yeah. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of students of God's word are at that place in their life. They want and need that kind of help. But at the same time, you know, it's, you don't want to recommend something with any kind of poison, you know, right. that would get them. It would really hurt them. Right. So, well, as we, the old, as we consider the old Testament more, I mentioned about the different literature. Maybe I can dip down in that for just a second. Again, how would the different types of literature in the old Testament, uh, how would that help us to interpret 
it correctly. Um, you know, that makes me want to ask another question, I guess, too. You <laughs> Go can just ahead. Go right ahead. Touch, touch on that and move forward, because I know you have talked about that already a little bit. But um, what would you say are some of the main themes in the Old Testament? Obviously, there are portraits, you know, of, and there's there of, of Messiah, you know, of Christ. Right. But but also just the nation of Israel itself, like in modern ears, we tend to read about Israel and we just, we say, wow, God had so many rules for them. I'm so glad I don't live under the old Testament. And I, I know, I know a lot of my life growing up, that's about all I thought about the old Testament. Yeah, I'm so, yeah. all I could think about the old Testament was how glad and how happy I am that we don't live under the old Testament today. I don't speak to that. Do you have yes. any thoughts on that? I certainly do. Uh, a lot of them, actually. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, 1 and 2, needs to be in our repertoire of texts. Uh, Hebrews 4, 1 and 2 says this. He's reflecting on the Exodus generation. And he says in 4, 1, let us now, the Hebrews, in, oh, around the time of Christ, I'm thinking maybe around 68 AD, so obviously not Old Testament anymore. But he says, let us, the Hebrews, fear, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to come short of it. Uh, Hebrews 4, 1. Now, I'm getting ready to read 4, 2 of Hebrews, but this is probably Paul, I'm thinking, writing this. And he says in Hebrews 4, 1, we need to look back at the Exodus generation and be aware. Some of those guys fell back there. We could have the same thing happen to us. Now, this is where it gets really good and really interesting. And this really needs to be formative for our view of the Old Testament. He says in 4, 2 of Hebrews, for indeed, we have had, here's your Greek word, euangelion, gospel, translates it, at least in my text, as good news. We have had good news preached to us, and then there's this, just as they also. Now, there was gospel back under the Old Testament. There was good news back there, too. Anybody who walks away, it says this in 4.2, but the word that they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those that heard. Anybody who looks at the Old Testament as though it was a legalistic system, an oppressive system, is just simply doesn't know what he's doing. I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. The Old Testament was no more legalistic than the New Testament. It had faith to be mixed with it, too. We have laws, if we can even word it that way, laws or rules or commandments. Jesus Christ said as much in John 14. And uh, he's telling us that we've got to keep rules or laws, but that doesn't have to be a legalistic setup. Uh, we can obey deeds of faith. We can have acts of faith that are no more meritorious than the notion of having faith itself. And so I think if we go back to the Old Testament, we need to see that just because they had, what was it, 612 or 13 laws, that's by no means a legalistic setup. In fact, David in Psalm 40 says as much when he says, uh, what you're really asking from me, God, is a pure and contrite heart, Psalm 46 through 8. Yes. He goes on, and this is with the sin with Bathsheba. He writes this psalm in Psalm 51, created me a clean heart, dot, 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 dot. You get down to about 16, and he says something like this. What you're really looking for, God, is the man of a broken and contrite heart or spirit. That's Psalm 51, 16, and 17. Now, here's the point. The laws that we follow, the laws that we keep, the commands we obey, 
do not earn us salvation. And they didn't back under the Old Testament either. They should not have had that set up. In fact, what the sacrificial system, both under the Old Testament and the New Testament sacrificial system in our Lord Jesus Christ, what they both aim to do is strike at the heart. And the heart that's right with God, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, will appropriately seek to make the sacrifices that should be an extension and never a replacement for a broken and contrite heart and spirit. So the Old Testament's not a legalistic setup any more than the New Testament is. It was always to be mixed with faith, and the people that weren't mixing it with faith were actually, so says Hebrews 4, destroyed because of their faithlessness. Uh, So just on that first question anyway, asking about the Old Testament and some of the themes back there, I think that's a major thing to keep in mind, that there was gospel back there too. They should have been living by faith. It was a it was a different time, that's for sure. But sure. there's a good book talking about resources. Paul Copen has an awesome book uh, called "Is God a Moral Monster?" And there are sections of that book that are really just superb, worth the price of the book. He's got, I think it's chapter five, where he talks about the Akeda, the offering of Isaac on the altar by Abraham. That chapter alone is worth the price of the book. But Paul Copen's book does a really good job of showing that Old Testament ethics were actually God's higher sense of ethics than the nations of the day. God in the Old Testament was calling them to a higher standard of life, just as he's doing with us in the New Testament, too. Um, I'll say something about the themes here in a moment. Looks like you've got something to say. Uh, that, that's good stuff. I like that. I mean, you know, God's grace through faith and, the, and, and faith, you know, and I love to say this. Faith is the action that you take based on what you believe. Yeah, that is and, right. You know, without that kind of faith, I mean, it's impossible to please God. Yeah. We must obey God, but it's God's grace. You know, we don't, it's how we reckon our works too. You know, and Paul says something about that in Romans. You know, our attitude toward our obedience and our works is absolutely critical in our salvation. I mean, we we yeah. can't see them as meritorious, you know, right. earning and, and because when we do, we get a wage. <laughs> yeah. And the way the wage is damnation, you know. But the person that believes and, you know, again, that I know is a misused verse by many false teachers. Right. But I truly believe Paul is striking at the heart you know, of all those that would read that, yeah. you know, you read David's words that you just mentioned about a humble and contrite heart, you know, and he mentions David in Romans four, even about yeah. David yeah. who believed and who had a humble and contrite heart and all that. And you saying what you did a moment ago about how other thoughts come with that. When you read it in the new Testament, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. like these other things about David, David, though he sinned and though he fell short of God's glory, like all accountable people have and do, he was a man of faith and obedience. He was. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's beautiful because, you know, God's grace, faith and his I love I love how you talked about, you know, God's system. Sometimes I hear folks and, and this is no personal accusation on anybody that I can think of, but I know I've heard this kind of thing. Uh, the idea I've heard it from denominational people, but I've I think I've heard this type of idea from even brethren sometimes. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yes. The idea that just the Old Testament was so legalistic and and like God gave that law just to see if they could keep it. And and since they couldn't, that's why Jesus had to come. And it's just like, I think we're approaching that the wrong way. Like God knew all along that they wouldn't keep it sinlessly perfect. But he did know, too, that there would be people who who would walk perfectly in the law, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, That's you know, right. yeah. godly yeah. people. 
not sinlessly perfect, but they did walk perfectly and they did walk humble and contrite and upright. And they were still in need of that great sacrifice, just as we are. I don't know. That's just a lot of good thoughts that come with that to help us appreciate the Old Testament. It's not this negative, just bunch of rules and God. And I'm thinking maybe that book you recommended might touch into this some. Is God it a does. moral monster? You it know, is this just does. some legalistic system in the Old Testament? Yeah, it's very good. Uh, one of the passages I think that's really been just raped in the past few years, maybe the past hundred or two hundred years, is John one seventeen where it says, you know, of Moses, law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Well, I would just want to prod that a, a moment before we take a bald interpretation of that and say that, oh, obviously the Mosaic system was legalistic and it was just hard to the core. Jesus Christ brings grace and truth. And now all of a sudden everything's free and we just don't have any restrictions. I would just want to counter that with like three questions, which would be, did Moses bring grace and truth? I mean, you've got to say yes. I mean, the Old Testament all over the place says Moses did bring grace and he did bring truth. And then I would ask if Jesus Christ brought a law. And that's clear enough, I think. Yes. He brought a law. So, I mean, those are two questions right there that already just puts that interpretation as suspect. I would yeah. really hold that there and just wonder if something else isn't meant by John 1.17. I think that he's talking about a climactic um, Jesus Christ is the heart of the matter. And that's what John's really driving home. That's certainly like, like grace, like yeah, grace and truth being fully realized through Messiah. That's right. That is right. Yep. Cause when we see Jesus, we can see the father. I mean, that yeah. comes to mind as the Lord said that in John 14, you know, you were talking about grace and obedience. I don't know why it is. I mean, I think I do, but I'm not exactly sure why our world sees like obedience and grace as over against each other. And the Bible just doesn't know that. Mm -hmm. uh, for whatever reason, the Bible just doesn't know that grace and works are supposed to be at odds with each other. They're not. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking of like, you might have seen this meme where it's not really a meme, I guess. It's just a photo of the ark and somebody has written there beside it. I've seen it both ways. I don't know if you've seen it both ways. I've seen it one way that says, grace didn't save Noah obedience did. I've seen it the exact other way. Obedience didn't save Noah. Grace did. <laughs> and I'm thinking neither of those are right. It's not over against grace or obedience. It's both and. And Genesis yes. 6, 8 and Genesis 6, 22 more or less says that. Yes. Uh, it, one, one text, Genesis 6, 8 says that it was grace. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6.22 says he did all that the Lord commanded him. So they're yeah. not at odds. The Old Testament was never a legalistic setup in that way uh, any more than the New Testament is. Yes, I agree. What was the next thing that I mentioned to you? Something about themes. I know I can I can get going and I forget too, but did you have something on that? Some themes? You did mention, you know, the one about striking at the heart of, of God's people and the nations around, no doubt, by... Do you have anything, uh, any thought as well on Israel as a nation, just how they were to be the light to the world? Oh, that's how, good. Um, here's a here's a question with that. I, I'm, I know I'm loading you, but you can, no, you can handle it. <laughs> I know in Isaiah more than once, he, he, he talks about how Israel was to be the light to the world, to the Gentiles. And then I'm minded that when Messiah came, he's speaking to these Jewish people and he says, you know, you are the light of the world. <laughs> it's yeah, like yeah doesn't yeah he's saying that 
doesn't that have something to do with the fact that that's what they were supposed to be doing all along? And how does that fit into us understanding the Old Testament or appreciating it? Yeah, that is not accidental. So let me go from the themes question, and I think I'll be able to link it up nicely to where we flow into the echoes of Isaiah, and it'll kind of make sense. You do have a couple of themes in the Old Testament that are just really prominent. As far as offices, the big three rightly recognized are prophet, priest, and king. Um, And you've got some people that really come close to meeting all three, but nobody ever can and does. And it's because the priest is supposed to be a Levite. The king is supposed to be a Judean monarch. And uh, you can't be of both. Like you would have claimed your paternal heritage, your father's heritage. So you could only claim one. You couldn't claim to be both a Judean and a Levite. You would have claimed to have been one or the other. So like even with Samuel, if he is even a Levite, there's a question about that that I'm not real sure. I I need to read more on that. Anyway, let's say that Samuel... uh, is a Levite, he comes real close to looking like a prophet, a priest, and a judge, but he can't be a king. Monarchy's not even set up yet, but he's preparing the way for that, but he's not of the right tribe. God had always said back in Genesis 49, 8 through 10, you know, there's going to be this cub, this lion's whelp, and he's going to spring out of the fourth right. son, Judah. So uh, yes. that, that's that's an interesting thing. I don't know if you've got something on that, but then I've got some other no, things here. No, go ahead. I like that idea, but continue on. So as the Old Testament theological development occurs, you've got other things that are not individualist. They're more like events that happen for God's covenantal people. The big, the big event, there are a couple of big events that really come out, and that is first and foremost, the creation. Uh, the creation becomes uh, formative. I mean, it's the heart of the new, it's the heart of the Old Testament as right as it opens up. So the creation becomes a major theme, but this leads to a second thing that becomes a major theme, and that is the Exodus. The Exodus becomes a second major event in the Old Testament where they're brought out of bondage and they are redeemed by God and brought into their own land. Now, I'll say something about some side-by-side themes that kind of run alongside what I'm saying now, but give me just a moment, and that is the creation is first, then the Exodus is the next major event, And then the third major event after that is the exile. Well, while the nation of Israel has those three events, those are the three big events of the Old Testament. If you work all that out and you start filling in the details, you'll really have a good grasp on the Old Testament, I think. So the creation, the exodus, and the exile. Those are your three major Old Testament events. And you get those worked out, you'll have a good grasp on the Old Testament, I think. Well, everything filters around that. But there are two major things at least that are constantly a concern in those events. And that is the land. And then as it comes to them, the land is critical. The land is always a major development. But then on the land, you've got things like the temple. And then of course you've got at the at the temple, you would have like this dual setup of the priesthood and the kingship. So the things that I'm calling attention to are the creation, the exodus, and the exile, but there are some major elements that are always there. The temple, of course, is not as easily seen in the creation account, but there's some evidence that would suggest that what God's doing is he's creating a cosmic temple, 
And even Solomon would say in First Kings 8 at the dedication of his temple, he says, you know, God, 827 of First Kings, we know that you don't actually dwell in a temple made with hands. Isaiah 66 says the same thing. Stephen says the same thing in Acts chapter 7. Well, where does God dwell? A major component always throughout the whole biblical literature, not just Old Testament, is that God doesn't dwell in physical things. He always comes back home to say, I sojourn, I pilgrim, and I dwell with people. And that's what he says in Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18. So let's go on to this question then that you had about, um, well, what about Isaiah and the light to the nations? This is where these themes really start to blend together nicely. Because the first element that we see light, or the first place we see light popping up as an element is in the creation narrative. You start to see that light is the first thing created by God. Now, I'm convinced that that's a physical description. It's a physical creation that's actually described there in Genesis 1 through 11. It's a legitimate portrayal of the cosmos and how it was created. But what happens is this whole idea stands as a symbol or an emblem for the people. This is when God sets and redeems and works creation. And so what happens is then it's reused as a descriptor for the exodus. And so then like in, in Moses' day, he talks about bringing them out and God's relighting things. He presents it in a lot of ways as a new creation. If we find the echoes there in the Torah, uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, he calls the Exodus from Egypt something like a new light. God is bringing new light to the people. He puts them on eagles' wings and carries them out of Egypt, Exodus 19, 1 through 6 says. But yeah. what gets really interesting is in the exile, both of those themes then, the creation and the exodus get blended together where God is more or less saying in the exile, I'm going to do it again. You've seen me create before. You've seen me deliver you from Egypt before. Watch me do the same thing from Assyria, Babylon again. He can do it again. When Jesus Christ comes along, he grabs the language then not only of the creation, not only of the exodus, but now also the exile. And Jesus is just like recapitulating these Old Testament themes and saying the same way that God has delivered you over and over and over again. Well, now he's done it climactically in me, the Messiah. And you're exactly right. In Isaiah 42, 6 and 7 and in Isaiah 49, 5 and 6, it says in a number of places about the suffering servant, which was originally supposed to be the whole nation. They bombed on the task. They couldn't get it done. They squandered their delegation. The nation of Israel failed as a whole. God doesn't ditch the nation and say, well, we're scrapping you and we're starting a whole new project. He just narrows it down a bit. And he says, I'm going to select a specific group then out of the nation. It happens to be the righteous remnant. He says, forget about Ahab and Jezebel and Nadab and Abihu. I'm going to select just the faithful people. And the faithful people will be the ones to bear my light to the world. Well, they couldn't do the task either because even in their faithfulness, they still had fallen short of the glory of God. So out of the righteous remnant, he selects one. So all of this, if you can imagine a triangle, is building from the bottom up to where it finally peaks or climaxes in one individual who raises up himself out of the righteous remnant, out of the nation of Israel. And it's this Jewish boy, the carpenter boy, Mark 6, 3 says, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth, born to Mary of a miraculous conception, but of a physical descent, he claims heritage in Joseph. 
so says Matthew 1, Luke 3. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. It's good Jesus stuff. Jesus Christ, go mm-hmm. ahead. Say it's good it stuff. It's good oh, stuff. Okay, okay. <laughs> here's where it gets really interesting then. Jesus Christ is this boy who's the faithful Jew, the only faithful Jew who's ever been sinless. And he comes out of the Jewish righteous remnant, the Jewish nation. He's the individual. And it says in Luke 2.32, this is Simeon, I believe it is, in Luke 2.32, who says of Jesus, he'll be a light to the Gentiles. Now, that's a direct echo back to Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49. Now, where it gets even more interesting is this. Paul, on the other end of the cross, the other side of the cross, says that he too was recapitulating the Messiah's work. And so the Messiah, the individual Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who fulfills Isaiah's task to bear light to the world, something God had done at the creation, something God had done in the Exodus, something God had done in the exile, God is now bearing light through the Messiah. But Paul sees himself on the other side of the cross as also being a light bearer. And this is not accidental, for Jesus himself had said that we were to let our light so shine that we might glorify the Father which is in heaven. He says in John 8, you're exactly right, 8, 12, he's the light of the world. He says the same thing in John 9, 3. When we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, here's Paul speaking of all of this. And Paul says of his own ministry, his own apostolic ministry, he says that the same God who had spoken at the creation, and he blends together Isaiah 9 and Genesis 1, he weaves those together in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. He says, God who said, light shall shine out of darkness also is the one who has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What he's saying is this, the suffering servant, which was originally supposed to be the nation, gets redirected to the righteous remnant, gets even further narrowed down to an individual Messiah, Jesus Christ, and then the floodgates are opened up broadly as that same task to be the light to the world is now open to all of us who would identify ourselves in the representative Messiah, Jesus. And that's what Paul's saying he's doing. And he's calling us to also recycle that kind of ministry as we in the world today are a light to the Gentile world for the glory of Christ. Uh, There are some passages in Isaiah 54, 17, 56, 6, 65, 7 through 15 that say the same kind of thing. After Isaiah 53, the climactic text about the suffering servant, something really interesting happens in Isaiah's text. It's not just servant singular after Isaiah 53. It's servants plural. Isaiah 54, 17. Isaiah 56, 6. Isaiah 65, 7 through 15. And what, what God's doing is he's saying that there was the suffering servant singular, Jesus the Messiah. But now he's inviting people like Paul and people like Aaron and people like Drew to be servants just like Jesus was. And that's what Paul sees his ministry as, a recapitulation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he would rightly say in 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, a number of places, death works in us, but life in you. And that sounds an awful lot like what happened to Jesus Christ. Paul sees his ministry as a recycling of what Messiah had done. So what you're saying if I'm picking up what you're putting down, is that these themes, (laughs) these themes continue from, they start from creation. They go through the history of the nation of Israel. They find their, you know, their complete 
Yes, their exhaustion. Actualization in Jesus Christ. And then we are to reflect him. And and in doing so, when we identify with him, when we obey Christ, we we are we become, you know, light bearers to the world. And it's just the same themes that God has always says. This is making me go back to our previous discussion, how under the Old Testament system, it was God's grace through faith. And, you know, they were the light then. And then that light, you know, peaked, if you will, the ultimate light, the son of God. And then as followers of the son of God, we are reflective of that one true light there. Hence, we are the light of the world, you know, Ephesians four and five and other places. Yeah, that's right. Children of light, all those kinds of things. It's just, it's like the same truth. So I think this where I want to take this, because we got about maybe about 10 or minutes left. Okay it shows like the continuity between the old and the new. Whereas maybe when I was growing up and maybe some, and I'm not trying to be negative or, you know, there's not (laughs) any one name. There's not any one name that I can point to, but I felt growing up around the church, generally speaking, and from my limited knowledge and as, as it grew that the old and the new were just so different and the, the old, I'm just so glad we don't have to live under all those laws. Yeah. And, and the new is so much better. And the old was insufficient. It was incomplete. And, and these kinds of things, though there may be bits of truth in those things, it wasn't, it was incomplete in that That's it right. was not the finalization of God's plan, right. but it did do what God wanted it to do. Didn't it? Didn't the it, covenants do what he wanted them to do? The law did what he, even though man failed, even though Israel as a whole fell in the wilderness, they fell in the exile. They, and then the righteous remnant and all this kind of stuff. How do you see all these things we've talked about is just bridging these things together to see like the messianic kingdom, for example, yeah. That, you know, this, that, that the, the, and we only have a few more minutes left. Maybe we could do another episode on this Lord willing in time to come, but just like the idea of God's reign and authority and oh, his, yeah. his people, his covenant people and people under his reign and authority who obey him. And, you know, God's always had a kingdom. He's always had power. He's always had a reign. He's always reigned in heaven above, and he's manifested it in different ways. But maybe in the last few minutes, how he's manifested it in 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 Christ through the yeah, church. Yeah, good question. Really good question. Uh, there is a continuity, and that's where I think we have a bad – well, you've, you've brought up a lot of stuff that I'd like to say, just a quick little thing about. Uh, <laughs> one of them is I think – I think the real thing that drives us to say that we're not under the old is that we're not under the old and yeah. to go back to it. The new Testament constantly does warn us. Yes. This is not a system to return to. You go back under that system. You don't have a Messiah. He's not come under that system. Yeah. But at the same time, those people before the cross, they had a responsibility to recognize that the Messiah had not come. If yeah. they had tried to say on the other end of things, like we are now saying that the Messiah has come in Jesus if they were trying to say prematurely that the Messiah had come in their day, they would have been off point. Yes. So there is a continuity, but the continuity is not based on the temporalness, whether it's before or after the cross. The continuity between the old and the new is on the basis of faith. The people under the old were looking forward to the Messiah. We are looking back at the Messiah, and that's where the continuity exists. It exists between both people that see that faith in Jesus Christ, who came at only one point in human history, 
was actually the one that bridges the gap there. So you're right. I don't think there is to be some great divide, though we can definitely see there are some differences in a lot of big ways between the Old and New Testaments. But at the same time, if we cut the narrative off, we cut scripture in a way that it's not meant to be diced up. Uh, we're actually cutting the story short. And I believe this term needs really some thought. I'm not saying I buy into everything that some of the guys that have used this terminology have said, but there's a phrase that's becoming popular called covenant theology. I'm not so sure I'm against everything that camp is saying. In fact, there's a, an awful lot of it put out by N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes that I think they're really getting right. There's a lot of stuff that N.T. Wright's saying that I think he's getting wrong. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff about how scripture forms a cohesive whole that I really like that they're saying. Uh, if we start divorcing the Old Testament people and we leave them back separate from the New Testament people now, we're missing the whole point of the whole Bible, which forms a singular whole story. Yeah. The people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are exemplary models of our faith. Jesus is an exemplary model of faith. And we now on the New Testament side of things look at Paul as also an exemplary model of faith. Can we see how all three of those fellows stand in our same rich heritage? I think so. So talking then about like the reign of God and the messianic kingdom and how it's demonstrated itself, I think is it's always been on the basis of faith that God is wanting to show that's how he reigns in the lives of people. And the Messiah did it right. The Messiah came and showed us what supreme faithfulness looks like. He was perfectly submissive. He emptied himself of status. And I'm thinking of a human analogy where could we ever imagine why a baseball coach would ever pull a player out of a game? His best player, let's say he's got a star player. They need one hit. And if they get a hit, they win the game. It's the series. It's the big series. And the coach pulls the player out of the game. Could you imagine reasons why the coach might do that? I certainly can. Right. Maybe it's for instructive purposes. Maybe it's to show a different kind of humility or something. There are cases where, you know, your students in school don't make good grades and they sit bench because of it. And I'm thinking that there's a reason then that the coach looks at it that way. There's a soccer player who's quite famous that I heard one time make the statement. There are more things that are important than winning a game. Now, that's coming from a professional athlete. I think Jesus looked at his role as a human being in the same way. Jesus Christ came to earth. The devil tried to tempt him, told him he'd give him all the things of the world, told him to commit suicide by diving off a cliff. And Jesus said, if you understood the real nature of divinity, the real nature of power, the real nature of the Messiah, you'd know I can't do this thing. I'm laying my reputation down rather than exploiting it. And Jesus Christ yeah. himself says that's what real power looks like. Paul would say of Jesus Christ in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 4, his power, his real power was seen in weakness. It's not the white teeth. It's not that we're six foot three and we've got the broad shoulders and we've got the PhDs. Real strength, so says Christ and so says the example of Christ, was seen in self-emptying, not self-glorification, self-sacrifice, and an attribute of love that this world has never known. And if we want to show the same kind of real power, what the reign of God looks like, we too will restructure our lives after the example of Jesus Christ, who for joy laid his life down, endured the cross and the shame, 
because he knew what it meant. It was a real display of power, and it meant more to him than just to come to humanity and live with all of the glitz and the glam that this world has to offer. He showed us what real power looks like. That's the example I think we're supposed to follow. That's the reign of God, living itself out, as the Beatitudes would say, in the lives of people like you and me. Amen. And that's what I was going to say. I was just going to add that thought. The Beatitudes make me think of everything you're saying right now. That's right. Just Jesus and his, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit. And yeah, all this, this, that sermon takes on so much more significance to our modern minds when we, uh, uh, when we attempt to appreciate it in its context. Yes. And, yes. And, oh, the, love- and, Let me say this real quick as well. I meant to say this earlier and just forgot. It's just come back to me Uh, on the light thing with Isaiah. You know, if you were to quote Matthew 5, 16 to me, let your light so shine, I wouldn't say that that's wrong by any means. I'd say, well, after all, that's scripture. But I think when we put the Old Testament and all of that background with it, it gives it, we might say, a more exhaustive look. It adds some detail and some depth there. It makes a little bit more of a, a sense, I suppose. Yes, yes. And, and scripture does that, you know, you saying about the kingdom and God's reign and what that looks like today. That looks like a person obeying God's grace by faith, you know, and, yeah. and, and the kingdom of God. I, I love the passage, you know, Luke 17, 21, the kingdom of God is within you. Right. That's God's reign in the hearts and minds of people by grace, through faith. People would love God, love Christ and obey his will. Walk in the light. First John one, there's the light principle. Again. <laughs> That's right. That is right. You know, yeah. It's all, it's all over it. I tell you, Drew, I have really enjoyed this so much. This has been uh, uh, encouraging and, and hopefully helpful and enlightening to uh, my listeners. And, um, you know, if, if some things that, that we said were maybe a little bit new, but they intrigued you, I would encourage the listeners to go back and listen to it again. And, 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 you know, when I learn, and I'm sure drew, I know you are a very serious student of God's word. I'm sure that you do this, even though I don't have a camera in your office to know you do it. I'm sure that you take pen and paper and I do the same. And I want to encourage my listeners to do that as well. Not just this episode, but just in, in every day, you know, anytime that you're studying God's word, have pen and paper down and, and jot down the, the questions you have, the answers that you find words, maybe that you don't know and, and look up further or words that seem to mean a lot and, and, yeah. and, and meditate on them. You know, I mean, it, it truly, truly, you can't study the word of God without reading it. But, uh, but the, at the same time, we we must study it. We can't just read. We can't, yep. you yep. know, go here and there and everywhere in the Bible, but try to try to get a grasp of 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 all of it. Um, I don't know if this is a proper way to end or not, but I, in recent times, I, I, I encountered um, a denominational person on the internet that asked a couple members of the church who were interacting with him. This denominational individual asked these brethren, have you even read the entire Bible? And I think the response from both of these uh, brethren were, I'm not sure I've read most of it or I've read a lot of it. And that really stuck with me. Like, you know, I wanted to make sure and I still want to make sure that I've read it all I mean, we're always going to be learning and growing. I'm not even suggesting something along those lines, but just if we haven't even read the whole Bible and we've been a Christian for several years, that's not good. You know, (laughs) we, (laughs) we, 
we we need to, and that's a challenge to me. The, the, there's a lot in the volume of God's book. It's it certainly it, there is there, but I think some of the things we have said would help one to help to get that big picture of the whole Bible. And much of this conversation has been about the Old Testament. I think that's going to be yeah. something something about the Old Testament in the title of this of this podcast um, about the old Testament and appreciating it. So Drew, do you have any final thoughts? Just I would just simply say, thank you. It's been a pleasure. I always enjoy talking about the Bible, appreciate your interest in it and really appreciate the opportunity to come on board here. Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me and, and uh, Lord willing, maybe there'll be uh, other opportunities in the future. Uh, if any listening to this podcast have any questions uh, about anything that we've said, uh, you're welcome to find us. You can find us on social media and probably other places. Drew, you have an email. I think you use a good bit. You want to give it? I do. I'll give that. Uh, my email is Drew Leonard, D-R-E-W-L-E-O-N-A-R-D at live l-i-v-e dot com and then i also have a website which is c-a-d leonard c-a-d l-e-o-n-a-r-d dot com and on there we've got a wealth of materials most of them are free if you're a purist and you want something in a hard copy we have that available for sale uh it'll redirect you to a site where they're all published the the books are that that is anyway uh but we've got articles we've got a free video series on daniel that we've put out recently that's really i think a helpful video series it's fast you'll want that pen and paper that aaron was telling you about um but but lots of materials there you might find it helpful in your walk with god amen and uh i personally recommend checking out his website i've gone there and i do when i can and and uh, I've enjoyed, uh, I have several of Drew's books and I, I have enjoyed learning from them and, and helping me in my study of God's word. There's only one heavenly book. Uh, there, right. may, there are many books that can help us in studying the heavenly book. But there's only one heavenly book. And uh, I, I really love and appreciate uh, men such as yourself and others, brothers and sisters who love it and appreciate it and seek to live by it. So well, thanks, thanks once you. again, Drew. And thank you for all who have stayed uh, through the duration of this. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor, if you would, and share this podcast on whatever um, format platform that you find it on. This has been the Give Me Understanding podcast. Aaron Dodson, the host, special guest, Drew Leonard. And I appreciate you tuning in. God bless. And I'll catch you next time.